0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We can catch up with Tony Dwyer right now, Canaccord Genuity Equity Strategist. Tony, are you starting to feel uncomfortable with where this market is right now, given what is going around all around the world around us, in Europe, in the United States, even more so in the last 24 hours?
2: It just is, um, it's disheartening to hear, but it, it just goes to show what drives the market is money, it's always driven the market. And it's, unfortunately, the social side of it isn't as important as the excess liquidity side of it. And the excess liquidity side of it, as you guys know, is absolutely extraordinary. But just a quick comment, John, on the dollar. So if you look back over the last, since 2009, since the um, great financial crisis, there's been three other periods of such a pronouncedly weak dollar historically, when it gets down more than 8%, which it did in the summertime, it ends up going down between 13 to 17%. And of course I'm talking about the US dollar index. And the reason that that's important is people always try to make it about deficits and excess debt. And what it always comes down to is the dollar gets weaker in that second leg lower, where it goes down into the mid teens because it starts to understand and accept that there is a synchronized global recovery. And that, I believe, is the movement of the dollar versus some kind of panic over Brexit or panic over excess debt.
0: Tony, good morning. Your number one call is own stocks until there's a recession. Are you going to sell stocks because you see a recession coming?
2: Tom, we are in the beginning, beginning of a new economic and market cycle. Um, If you look back at, at how the market's acting and how all the indicators are acting, it's very similar to what happened toward the end of 2009, where you had a back. If I take you back there, there was historic excess liquidity, just like there is now. And you had this synchronized global recovery coming out of the great financial crisis. So, Even though the market was up 50 percent in the summertime of 2009, it kept going up because there was this excess liquidity and this understanding that the globe was was recovering all at the same time. And that's that's been the the impact of the pandemic globally is that everything shut down in March, like the whole world shut down. And now we're coming off of that low, although, you know, obviously there's going to be fits and starts over the very near term here.
3: So a lot of equity strategists, yourself included, have been pointing to signs of euphoria, extreme buying, uh, particularly in this moment, based on those terrible numbers that we're getting out of hospitals and deaths uh, on the heels of the COVID pandemic. What do you do as a longer term investor? Do you just ignore it and basically say, long term, it's all going to work out? Or do you try to play this in the real time?
2: Lisa, I'm not very good at chasing excessive optimism and strength. And again, it's not a sign that we're about to collapse. Going back to Tom's question, this the only time you really get sustainably defensive on equities. In other words, sell, sell, sell is when you can predict a recession is coming and you can do that through the yield curve. When you have an inversion of the yield curve, it's one of the reasons we downgraded the market in January of this year. The yield curve, remember the yield curve had inverted last August. So Lisa, the yield curve is just steepening. Right, that's the sign, just like it's a sign of a recession is coming when it inverts, when it goes from an inversion back to a positive slope, it's a sign of economic activity. So our play <clears throat> is to buy periods of weakness, like the September swoon where the market was, the S&P was down 10% and the October whoosh where the, the market was down 8% in two weeks. Those are the kind of environments where I think you want to attack the opportunity versus feeling like you're quote unquote missing something and chasing this kind of optimism that's out there
1: tony isn't that a story for everyone though everyone's waiting for the pullback to buy everyone's got the same trade on right now i'm trying to work out what would test the patience of this market at the moment to actually lead to some kind of pullback the data's been soft on claims over the last couple of weeks maybe it's softer again this morning as well it just seems to me that everything is so firmly anchored by the expectation that vaccinations will begin in the uk next week in america maybe in the next couple of weeks tony
2: John, as you guys know, it always comes out of nowhere. People like me are famous for coming on TV and saying, oh, I think this is going to cause it's not it's not predictable. What causes you know, a real kind of sharp two week sell off. And again, I'm not expecting anything too dramatic is when you it's it's a news item that you can't predict. And it comes from well, while, while folks like us, you guys in the media and me in the in the sell side strategy group are saying, OK, the market's due for a pullback. Investors aren't playing it that way because that optimism is so high. We, we track this thing called the National So of active independent managers. It looks like it looks at active money managers, real money movers um, that are that range from small to large. And it's at a level that was the, the most recent time it was there was around the August peak, right before we had that 10% decline. And again, before that, about three years ago. So optimism is very high among actual investors, which is actually a good yeah. thing when you're coming off of a historic low.
1: Tony, fantastic to catch up. You're always looking well. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord well, Genuity, okay, Thank yeah. you, sir. Thank you, guys.
0: Right now, the bond dynamic, as John mentioned, Kathleen Jones joins us right now with Schwab and their Center for Financial Research. Kathleen Jones, we're seeing a bond move. I see the Bloomberg Barclays total return index up, up, up. It doesn't compare to the equity markets, but still, it's been an extraordinary two-year run for bonds. When do bonds breathe and we see price down and yield up?
4: I think we're starting to see it, particularly in the long end. Now, you know, we've seen the steepening of the curve uh, with the 10-year Treasury pushing up against that 1%, and we're we're looking for a further steepening, that bear steepening, where the Fed is anchored, <clears throat> short-term rates near zero, and long-term rates try to edge higher. Not looking for a, a huge move uh, at this stage of the game, because the economy still has a pretty dark uh, period to go through here. But I think as we look into the second half of next year, if we really get the vaccines distributed and the economy fully reopens, people get back to work, it's not unlikely that uh, 10-year yields are in that one to one and a half percent area.
3: There's a consensus in markets that bond yields would be much higher if it weren't for the widespread belief that the Fed will step in and suppress yields if they climb too high. What is that level that triggers the Fed's concern?
4: Yeah, I I wish I knew. I wish there was like a line in the sand that they're going to draw, but I don't think that that's realistic. I think it's more likely that the Fed looks at the rate of change and the underlying nature of what's driving it. So if you're sitting at the Fed and you see rates move up to one and a quarter, uh, and it's off the back of good economic data, falling unemployment, rising consumption, you might just shrug your shoulders and say, that's not a terrible thing. Um, If it's disorderly and a sudden jump because inflation expectations have really become unmoored, uh, then it might be an area to worry about. But at this stage of the game, financial conditions are really easy. And even with a quarter point move from here, they'd still probably be pretty easy.
1: Kathy, expectations matter, though. And you and I know a ton of people who believe that yields won't go much higher because the Fed will step in December 16th and extend the average maturity of their bond buying. I'm wondering if they don't, how big the air pocket is for Treasuries.
4: Yeah, uh, there does seem to be a widespread consensus about that. I'm not really sure why. When I read the minutes of the last meeting, I, I don't get the sense that they're eager to jump in at this stage of the game or to extend duration. Um, so maybe that does give us a, a bit of a pop here. But the, the realistic situation is we still have a lot of uh, a lot of bad news to get through over the next quarter or so. And I think that that in and of itself will probably limit the appreciation in terms of yields from here.
1: So it's interesting to me, Kathy, that the disruption of the next few months would keep a lid on Treasury yields, but it won't keep a floor on how tight credit spreads can go. Credit keeps rallying. But yields are limited on treasuries. Square that for me, Kathy. Make sense of that for me. If it matters for treasuries, why doesn't it matter for credit?
4: Yeah, I think credit spreads are about as tight as they can go for the time being, particularly in high yield. Maybe they can extend a bit further, you know, the market. It, it, certainly high yield and, and much of the world of credit, it's much more like the stock market than the treasury market. And so they're looking forward at earnings coming back and cash flows improving the search for yield. That's all driving this sort of cyclical rally in um, credit. And I think it continues over the next six months to a year or so, uh, but a lot of it's been done already. And the lower credit quality is certainly vulnerable Uh, to some sort of bad news here because, uh, particularly in the high-yield world, the lowest-rated bonds, the triple Cs, et cetera, have rallied so much. There's not much in the way of, of reward left for the risk.
0: Kathy, what are people actually doing with their money now? Schwab has a wonderful ability to see not what we say, not what we talk, but what we do. What are we doing when you look at bond, bill, and note flows?
4: Yeah, we we see a lot of um, our clients sticking with shorter duration, higher quality bonds. Um, They they like munis. Um, You know, we have a a pretty large cohort of retirees or people near retirement, and they're still committed to their municipal bonds, um, bond ladders. Uh, They really haven't changed the way they look at things, but shortening duration, keeping duration short waiting for yields to move up seems to be a major trend amongst the bond investors.
3: So I want to go to something that John was talking about earlier when he started this segment and was looking at the equity market and said, this doesn't feel comfortable. And I'm looking at credit markets and I'm looking at triple C of bond yields. Basically, these are the bonds that are the riskiest of risky. They're the closest to default. And yields on this debt are the lowest since 2014. I'm also looking at the fact that you have companies burning through cash an increasing number before they even pay interest and in other expenses. At what point is this unsustainable In other words, how long do they have before we have to get that uh, vaccine or something to end the pandemic for them to stay in business?
4: Yeah, and this is the worrisome part about high yield, the real risk. Um, That cash burn is really picking up and the leverage is very high. And so they, they need to get things to improve pretty quickly, I would say. If we don't get real light at the end of the tunnel in the first quarter. So we're going to see those bankruptcies pick up and those defaults increase. And what we're worried about in the default side is the recovery rates are going to be quite low. And that's why we're really pretty cautious about the high yield market. Kathy, who's going to bear the brunt of those losses? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, it's going to be probably spread out pretty well. We have Yeah, a a pretty wide swath of people who have been in the ETFs. So if you're in a broad-based high-yield ETF, there's defaults and losses. You're going to feel it in any uh, um, index-following investment, but also some of the specialized funds. You know, the active managers always like to tell you that they, they know which are the good bonds and which are not, uh, so we'll see what they do. Uh, but then, shade. Any of the creditors, uh, you know, to fill the. Uh, I, I'm just reflecting what I'm told. That's
1: all. I hear the same thing, Kathy. They always hold the good bonds, they never hold the bad <laughs> Only bonds. The good Kathy, ones. thank you. Only the good Kathy Jones of Charles Schwab, the Center for Financial Research. Right now, we've been talking about
0: this all morning, perfect timing to speak to Kit Jukes, the Societe General, yes, on foreign exchange, but he wonderfully folds it into the political economies of the world's financial system. Kit Jukes, let me start with the why. Why is the euro appreciating?
5: Uh, I think the euro is appreciating because the dollar's falling, simple, simple starting point, because the real interest rate advantage that the dollar built up against the euro since 2011 has collapsed. Um, and as the global economy starts to look forwards at a better tomorrow with vaccines, we can't have the euro this undervalued against the dollar. Um, more, most of the move has to come from a weaker dollar, but... Um, but that, that relationship is wrong and you can see it in in so many ways that the capital flows that kept the euro down are beginning to unwind. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we need to end up in two years' time at 130 for euro dollar somehow.
1: Kip, the road to 130. Where's the pain threshold for the ECB? Is it the pace, the level? What are you um, looking for?
5: It, it's the pace. Uh, and um, and and how it happens. So pace because you affect obviously exporters and also inflation, which is huge. So Philip Lane really really wanted to put the brakes on when we moved up to 120 quickly in the summer. That that worked. So we can go back there now without too much pain. But he'll be worried again because the Europeans don't want any more disinflation deflation. Uh, and then and then and then the way it's made up because. What what really matters for the economy is going to be the trade-weighted euro and not just euro-dollar. Uh, the, the biggest the biggest unit in a trade-weighted euro is a Chinese yuan, which you've been talking about. If the Chinese will let their currency appreciate, you can get to 130 much faster. It's likely they won't let it get much further at all than we are now, and that is why the whole thing has to happen really slowly. But But at the other side of all of this, you know, The the, the euro, when it was trading 105.115, was very artificially very weak as a result of ECB policies in 2014-15. And we have to go back and remember that. It is down here because of quantitative easing and negative interest rates under Mario Draghi.
1: Kit Jukes, the only reason I'm talking about the Chinese currency is because you talk about it and you taught me everything I know about FX about eight years ago. I'm looking at Euro China right now. Five days. Five days, Kit, we've had a move on Euro Yuan. Now, I understand that the previous few weeks was a lot about dollar, broad-based dollar weakness. The last couple of days, though, China started to break down a little bit as well against the Euro. How do you think this sets us up next week for the ECB, Kit?
5: I think it means that they continue to be dovish. I think they'll say something about the euro at some point to try to slow this down unless it steadies. So, you know, we've broken above 120, but I don't think we can just break quickly to 125. I think we have to stop here because there is no doubt that the ECB wants to do more. Um, The the, the problem for the ECB to some degree, and they'll talk about it quite a lot, um, is that, as, as they've said lots of times, they don't have that much room in terms of policy maneuver from here what what do you get by getting rates a bit more negative what do you get with a bit more quantitative easing what europe needs is is easier fiscal policy um so so they can't you know they, they don't have a they don't have the magic bullet they had in 2014 of let's buy all the bonds and cut rates to negative so that you all have to put your money somewhere else that's not available but but they will push back and resist um and uh, uh, and they will come out with some more some more accommodation of some kind.
3: Kit, this is exactly where I wanted to go, the question of the efficacy of central bank policy on FX moves. And there's a question, have central banks and their policies lost the same efficacy in uh, per- perhaps manipulating, I don't want to use that word, loaded word, excuse me, uh, in affecting uh, FX rates, or are we looking right now at actually the economy that's determining where we are uh, seeing currencies valued?
5: Yeah, I think we're I think we're going back to a world where if we all have, look, if we all have zero interest rates and let's call them zero bond yields to keep ourselves happy, then then all the countries with big current account surpluses will end up with overvalued currencies because um, you know they won't have an incentive to recycle those. What we've done for a while is we've kind of played with that and sort of changed it around with rates. So. Um, you know, you've managed to get personally that the Japanese, with with um, Abenomics, managed to get a very weak currency with yield curve control, bond buying, equity buying, negative rates there as well, um, and, and all of this all of this becomes less effective. If you wanted a model for how it's not so bad, dollar yen went from under 80 to over 120, and as we've eroded all those relative interest rates away, as we've all started doing what the Japanese have been doing, we're only back at 104. So in a sense, you know, the Japanese are still keeping their currency competitive here, um, you know, for longer than I thought that they would manage um, because, because of, of the, you know, their aggression in terms of what they've done. So I think they still, you know, the, the central banks aren't powerless, but the, the problem is you can't fight the current in the same way because what was so successful was I moved my rates relative to yours. We all have the same rates now, almost.
3: Yeah, the race to to the bottom. And so there's a question for the ECB next week that perhaps is what you're seeing in euro and where it's currently being valued, that if they can't really do that much to stave off the strengthening, why not jump on this consensus trade? Is that your view?
5: Um, my, my view is the consensus trade, you know, ha- has to happen that, that the market, uh, the consensus trade is, you know, they work because when, when we change a regime, let's call this the regime of, of, um, of post-COVID zero rates for a long time, um, the consensus tends to be quite good once that regime change is clear. And the danger is that as, as the consensus starts to make money, everybody gets on board it. Because as you know, all the dowsers start start realizing what's happening, mm-hmm. um, and then you can't stop it. But if I'm a central bank, my only goal is to slow this down <clears throat> as much as possible, just like the Japanese right. have done.
0: Uh, Kid, it's great that we talked FX with you, and I, you know, I can look at you know the history being made here as we back go back to the 1980s and the Plaza Court. Kid, I've got to note a small soccer match this weekend. I call it a derby. Farrell calls it a derby, and I can't believe Arsenal's on the edge of relegation. I thought we'd never get here they got to play the tots what is their chance against the tots
5: hey. oh they're a better side against good sides than against mediocre sides at the moment i think if, I'm, if i am want to get myself some comfort uh we, we you know I, I i hope that that game puts some puts some steel into the into the boots of the arsenal players and they realize what there is their duty to look there after the though. happiness yes. of poor people like me <laughs> You're just trolling us. John, North London a lot, Tom. Duty. John Kit, jump thank you. In, Kit,
0: J- John Farrell, jump in here on the importance of this game to London.
1: We've got to let him go, but let me say thanks to Kit, and then I'll talk about that. Kit Jukes, okay. thank you, sir. Thank you, Kit Dukes. The you. importance of North London. Let's be clear about this, Tom. This is North London. Okay. It is the North London derby between Tottenham Hospice and Arsenal, you pick a side. Typically, if you live in North London, mm-hmm. which side? A North London resident, Kit Jukes himself, has clearly picked Arsenal. That is his side. So it's a big North London derby, Tom. Typically, over the years, Arsenal has come out on top in lead position. This year, and over the last few years, Spurs have been far more competitive, particularly this year, fighting for the title. Maybe, Tom, yeah. your tots doing a whole lot better <clears throat> than Lisa's Arsenal. Is the Col- really? Really? A good explanation. Did that help? That helped a lot. No, I mean, just it didn't help.
0: To grind Lisa into nope. the ground. I mean, Lisa, does there need to be a coaching switch at Arsenal?
3: I just know that I picked a losing team yet again after all of the New York teams. <laughs> Lisa, also. you
0: picked me and John. That's enough said right there. <laughs> I must uh, ask, Mr. Secretary, have you been contacted by the Biden administration about service there, as we've seen from Vice President Kerry? I uh, I, I have a lot
6: of friends who are going to be in in the new administration uh, from the top uh, through the the leadership levels. Uh, I'm uh, happy to offer my advice whenever asked. And uh, we'll continue to do so.
0: Let us speak of stimulus, Jack Lou, as we can. In the Friedman article in The New York Times, a president-elect makes clear he's willing to compromise with McConnell. He does not want to embarrass McConnell. What is the common ground that they can find quickly on stimulus?
6: Tom, the common ground has been clear for a very long time. And uh, finally, in the last, we've seen a conversation beginning uh, looking to find it. Um, since the expiration of extended and supplemental unemployment benefits, since the expiration of protections on, on uh, eviction, we've seen a train coming right at us, uh, and it's been far too long since uh, Congress has had a serious Congress conversation. The House passed legislation in May, and uh, we've seen virtually nothing since then. Uh, let's just uh, remember what the facts are, and Chairman Powell uh, described it so well in those opening comments. With nearly 10 million people unemployed, and a large fraction of them, five to 10 million people facing eviction, the degree of crisis here is not uh, small. It's very large. It's large in macro terms, and it's just enormous in terms of personal terms. If people lose their homes, if people are homeless at the end of this crisis, their recovery period will not be months. It will be very long and it will be very hard. That is going to be a social problem and an economic problem. So Congress has to deal Now, before the inauguration, with the the multiple challenges of keeping people in their homes with eviction protection, giving them support to pay mortgages and rent, helping keep food on the table through a combination of unemployment benefits and food assistance, and dealing with the problems that's taken in local government, which are going to mean a cutback in services and a loss of employment at the worst time. We went through the last high point of the COVID crisis, the low point of, of the economy, Um, with enormous government support, that's over. So if we go through the long, hard winter that we see ahead without additional support, Mm -hmm. it's a long time before January, February.
0: Mr. Secretary, how do we span the great distrust of the rural-urban divide in this nation? You have tackled that for years, again, going back to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts ages ago. There's just an immense distrust of those cities, And those Democrats, it's right out of the 19th century. How do we break that distrust and come to meaningful compromise?
6: It's a good question, Tom. And, you know, it used to be that uh, food assistance was one of the areas that brought uh, people together. Um, You know, the original food stamp program was a compromise between the agricultural community and, and people advocating on behalf of poor people. Um, We we could see something like that again. The truth of the matter is working people, regardless of whether they live in cities or in rural areas, face common challenges. You look at the team that Vice President, President President-elect Biden has put together. It's a group of people who focus on what does it take to make work produce a decent standard of living for people, regardless of where they live. Starting with Janet Yellen and her deputy, Wally Adeyamo, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, Cecilia Rouse, the head of the Office of Management and Budget near Tanden, these are all people who understand the problems that working people face, whether they're in cities or in rural areas. I hope we can begin that conversation, that their life experiences help them to connect with people both in the communities uh, where people like you and I live, and in rural areas where the problems are not as different as they seem.
3: But uh, Jack Luke, going back to the stimulus and good morning to you, are you worried that Republicans are rediscovering their traditional concerns over debt and thus won't do enough on stimulus?
6: So Francine, I've spent most of my career trying to strike the right balance between government having the resources to do what it needs in a fiscally responsible way to make this a better country uh, and and in times of crisis saying we need to do what it takes to get through the crisis this is a moment of crisis Th- this is a time when we should not be worrying about 100 billion dollars here or 100 there I, my own view my own view is the bigger the better but big is better than nothing so i'm glad there's a conversation going on the content of it matters The fact that they're now talking about targeting money along the lines of the bipartisan compromise of where it's most needed and not in the places that are inefficient, that makes it possible to have a very effective package at a size that's somewhat smaller. But this is not the moment to be worrying about the deficit. That moment will come. It came and passed when the tax bill was enacted a couple of years ago, when it was almost $2 trillion for, in my view, very inefficient and unfair tax policies, That added $2 trillion to the debt in a period of growth. We're in the worst economic period in my lifetime. And this is the moment to use fiscal resources. So I would go bigger now rather than smaller. And when the crisis is over, talk in a a reasonable way about how to get back to a sustainable path. And I just want to be clear, the crisis being over is when most of those 10 million people are getting back to work and the unemployment rate is starting to look the way it did before COVID.
3: But do you think, in your eyes, that they're worried about debt, which, in your eyes, you think is wrong, or do they not want to give a win for the Democrats?
6: Oh, I look. I, there, there's certainly politics going on with the Georgia elections in January. Frankly, it could cut both ways. You know, I, 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 I'm. It's hard for me to understand how it helps somebody running in an election now to say to people who are scared that they're going to lose their homes, we're not willing to do anything for you. So. I don't fully understand the politics, but uh, obviously it is a factor. Um, In terms of the economy and the impact of debt on the economy, um, the total debt stock is growing. It's larger now than it's been since World War II. It's also the worst economic crisis we've had since then. And the reality is this is not the moment to worry. The time to worry is when we get through this crisis. I don't think Chairman Powell would be talking about the need for fiscal stimulus the way he has been, even the way he did yesterday, if if it was not a a question that people (laughs) responsible for economic stewardship on both sides, who are taking what I think is a reasonable view, uh, are thinking. Um, That doesn't mean there's not a serious issue um, in terms of not having sufficient revenue to meet the spending requirements that our country needs. And in some cases, not taking a hard enough view on some of the spending issues.
0: Jack Lou, I want to go searching for the middle. Some would suggest that the president-elect, with his August age, is the last of a generation. You were weaned by Joe Moakley, who was on the ground, South Boston, down to Brockton congressman. How do we find the Moakley middle, whether Democrat or Republican?
6: Look, you know, I I came to Washington in the 1970s, and it feels like centuries ago. uh, But I just want to remind everyone that the 1980s and the 1990s were considered the most partisan era that we'd ever gone through, Uh, going a little beyond the years when I worked uh, for Congressman Moakley. The years I worked for Speaker O'Neill, the battles in 1980 to 82 between O'Neill and Reagan were considered hyper-partisan. Um, what happened in 1982 was a congressional election that divided government that told both men that the only way to make progress is to do it together. I wanna to be clear, Speaker O'Neill did not obstruct President Reagan. He lost in the votes. That's a big difference. Mitch McConnell is obstructing votes. If Mitch McConnell would allow a majority to vote, we could actually see bipartisan action on stimulus, on issues like immigration. So the challenge here is to get back to a tradition that bipartisan majorities have to act, not running the House and the Senate um, as a machine to produce uh, a primary uh, safety in one or another party mm-hmm. and uh, to secure a majority at the cost of, of functioning government. Gridlock will hurt our country if that's where we go again. And I think that President-elect Biden knows how to compromise. He knows how to do it in an honorable way for both sides. And Mitch McConnell knows how to do that also if he decides it's in his interest. I dearly hope that he decides it's in his interest. I don't think he wants to be remembered uh, in his final years as majority leader, or I hope minority Mm -hmm. leader, uh, as being an obstructionist. This country voted for people to work together. And Congress needs to let that happen.
3: Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Jacob Blue there, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary.
6: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg
0: Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.